Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 150. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed author, Simki Kuznick. And Simki, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And and so um, you're here to talk about you're you're here to talk about your your inspiring as you as you as you put in the in the. Um, in the reading, uh, the read up there, like your inspiring and timely book that is Paul Murray's Revolutionary Life. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about, so this, and this just came out March, March 1st. 1st. Yeah. March 1st. So mm-hmm. this is, this is, this this is brand new. Yes. Yeah. See, <laughs> two weeks, two weeks, a little over two weeks in it's been uh, uh-huh. published. Yeah. Um, that's exciting stuff because you usually, this is the, your, the, your first long prose published yes. book, correct yes um you've had a lot of poetry you've had a lot of um published works and in, in, in poetry but this being your the first one um mm-hmm. so kind of talk to us first kind of about the your, your inspiration so you uh you know according according to the notes you basically had this you first discovered you first discovered uh a, I just looked it up again. I'm sorry. I'm messing up. I'm gonna... Well, it's okay. I mean, you know, I'll, let me, I, I'll just say, you know, people always ask, how did, how did you learn about Polly Murray? Right. And uh, I think the subtext is kind of like, well, how does a white woman like you know about an obscure black woman that not many African-Americans know about? Right. And, and so, and so, cause you discovered Polly Murray, you said back in 1972 when you were working overseas correct um no it's just that um so it just started because i met a, a guy named bartelome ruzev who's uh, african-american from new orleans of creole heritage but he was a regional coordinator for operation crossroads africa which was a summer program to uh, for students to go to west africa and help we we built bricks to make a school and uh, um, that program was actually model a model for the uh, Peace Corps because mm. um, the pastor James Robinson, uh, President Kennedy, actually uh, used him as an advisor to to do the Peace Corps. Wow. And you know, it was a way to bring uh, people together. You know, I don't know that we did that much to build the school, but we had a lot of interactions <laughs> with each other. Great, and I just uh, made friends with uh, Bart, and uh, and then I went on to um, marry uh, a man from Eritrea, which is right next to Ethiopia in the Horn of Africa, and uh, he was came to he was an immigrant who came to America, sponsored by a Peace Corps member, and we had two uh, lovely children, and we uh, we were in, lived in California at the time, and we uh, joined a group called Interracial Pride to support uh, interracial black white families with biracial children, mm. and so Bart kind of knew that I was interested in interracial families, and then he gave me this book, Proud Shoes, written by Polly Murray in about 1956. And it ta- it it's a story of her very mixed background, her ancestors in America, a truly American story. And she had written it because um, she was trying to get a job 
and they at Cornell, I think, as some kind of research job, and mm. and um, she was um, refused because of her past associations. And she had references from Eleanor Roosevelt, who had become a friend, and Thurgood Marshall, and J. Philip Randolph, who had done a march on Washington. So she, you know, but even these people, uh, she had some uh, background in, she had once been a secretary at a tourist agency that took uh, trips to Russia. So mm. that was, you know, considered communist. So there was a little of that. Uh, but anyway, she was very incensed and said, well, you know, I need to tell people about my roots, my past associations. And the, um, so she wrote a book about her family and her, um, she lived with her grandmother and grandfather as her parents had died. And she lived with her aunt, actually, or, or all three of them. And um, so she knew her grandfather. And on his side of the family, he was from Pennsylvania. And um, he, this is like, the family goes back to the 18th century. Um, so her great-grandfather had been freed by a Quaker, uh, probably when he was maybe 20, and he never told the family that he was um, had been a slave. She had to find out that in a census mm -hmm. uh, because he was ashamed of it, but because he felt himself he was a free man of color. And he married a, a woman of a French family in Delaware. And so they, he had been hired as a hired, hired man in the family and she ran off, they eloped together. And they worked hard and for 20 years, they made $1,600 and were able to buy a farm. Wow. And they'd been farming all during this time. And uh, then the son, her, Polly's grandfather, um, fought in the Civil War. He listed about three different times. Um, I can show you like a picture of him oh, in that his up. uniform. Oh, wow. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, she has such wonderful photos of her uh, family, even of the the French woman, uh, the great-grandmother, who's very stern looking. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, um, so he was had a lot of escapades in the in the army and and in the navy. And uh, then after the war, the family uh, they were brick makers, uh, and they brought the business down to Durham, North Carolina, because they wanted to help educate uh, the freed uh, people, the men and women, and their children. Um, so that's what brought them to Durham. And then there, the grandfather met his wife who had a completely different story, which was that her, her mother was a uh, Cherokee woman who was enslaved in a family, a very prominent family. Um, there it was two brothers and a sister, none of them married. And their father had been a congressman in President Monroe's time. And okay. they gave money to found the University of North Carolina, which figures later in Polly's life. And but the her grand her great grandmother uh, was raped by one of the brothers and had her grandmother Cornelia, and then the other brother uh, took the you know took her away from that brother and had three more children and but all these there were four girls and uh, the spinster sister took them into the house to you know raise them as well they were her servants. Um, and she used to take them to the church and they would sit up in the pews for the 
um, the, the black uh, people up in the balcony of the church. And she mm. would always say, well, those are my servant girls. <laughs> and, uh, um, so that's the story of, and, and I think she gave a little bit of land to um, Cornelia, the grandmother, um, after freedom and, um, or I guess once they were married, they, they she gave them all the land to mm. work. And yeah. And I just thought, and then, and then I read her book, um, Proud Shoes, uh, which came out in 85, just about the year, right? It was posthumous because she died in 80, 1985. She was born in 1910, so she lived 75 years through the, all the upheavals of the 20th century. Right. And uh, so I, I was inspired to, you know, Polly Murray tells about all her escapades and accomplishments and first that she does but it's you know it's a little dry and i i wanted to write a story because uh, she has so many adventures that would you know inspire young people and kind of bring these the the more uh, adventurous parts of her life together and so that's why i wrote and and so so proud shoes uh was written how is that compared to the other memoir that the song in a weary throat well, that one just describes how she was researching and she tells a story of her ancestors mm. and doesn't talk about her own life at all. So the memoir, Song in a Weary Throat, is really her autobiography. Okay. And, and so where do you see it? So, you know, you know with, with that, with those two memoirs and, uh, you know, as, as you've, you've kind of mentioned, you know, there's, there seems to be a, a, a timeliness to to uh, uh, Paul Murray's revolutionary life coming that you you published. Um, what can for those that kind of follow follow Polly Murray's life? Uh, what are some of the things that you you've noticed that you were able to uh, kind of introduce to people that know about Polly Murray in this young adult this young adult um, novel memoir? Well, this. This book is different, you know, from there, you know, there's a documentary on her now right. um, by the women who, who did RBG uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's actually how they learned about Polly Murray, because um, Polly Murray had credited, uh, I mean, Ruth Ginsburg credited Polly Murray for a briefing about um, e equal rights for women uh, being in the 14th Amendment. And, um, but, uh, so, a lot, of, a lot of books go into her life, but don't really include the ancestors. And, and you know, and then she rode the rails uh, train like a hobo one time. And, and um, so, you know, people just sort of mention that, but they don't dramatize it. So that's kind of what I did in my book that's a little different. And actually, you talk about people who follow Polly Murray. But when I was writing the book and trying to get it published really about 10 years ago, I would give it to editors, some um, African-American editors, even at, you know, good publishing houses, uh, said, wow, this is really an interesting story, but no one's ever heard of her. So mm. I couldn't get it published. And um, so just recently um, gave it to uh, Rootstock Publishing. Uh, well, I, you know, I pitched it and it's a nice, small, independent publisher in Vermont, which you know about. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, 
so Stephen Mitchell said, oh, you know, my wife knows about Polly Murray because she's an old, a feminist from way back. And she knew that Polly Murray uh, helped found uh, the National Organization for Women. Um, just one little sidelight that Polly Murray did. <laughs> and, uh, so um, I was happy. I'm very happy to be with Rootstock. Um, right. And but meanwhile, in the time that I the, sort of the 10 or so years that where I, I kind of put the book away and figured, well, we'll, we'll try again later or something. Um, um, academics were writing books about Polly Murray. They had access to her papers at Radcliffe and she used to save everything. She, she, all her papers. And even though she lived in tiny apartments, she would always have boxes and boxes of her letters and, and, um, and she always said one person and a, and a typewriter can start a movement. So she was always writing letters. Uh, she even wrote um, President Nixon a letter nominating herself for Supreme Court justice one time. So like I say, now is her time. You know, she would have been up there uh, nominated for Supreme Court justice, I think, if she was, right. uh, was happy now. <laughs> so she was always ahead of her time. So, so talk to us about uh, talk to us a little bit about that. With what are some of the, uh, you know, the the book goes into so many firsts that she that that she was she was a part of, uh, and so what are some of those examples? And and I guess also what are some of the why would there be some reasons why nobody has heard of her if she's been ahead of her time for 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 so many things? Well. We think it, it, it's partly because, so as I was saying, her papers talked about more her love affairs and, you know, private letters. And um, so she was a lesbian, but she, like her memoir never spoke of that. She said she had girlfriends that acknowledged them, but she didn't talk about them being lovers. And um, so I basically, when I first wrote the book, just used her memoirs, the two books, as my mm. source. And then when I discovered there all this new information about her um, gender um, issues and you know flexibility, and she, um, I, I put that into my into the book, and that's what and it that's what kind of gives her a timeliness now because she she is a person who's so intersectional, um, you know, being. Uh, you know, a black woman and and also a lesbian and also um, transgender person. So um, she really wanted to be a man. She felt like she inside was a man, was a, was a man. Mm. Um, and so I, you know, I added those things. I was going to maybe the couple of things I thought I might read are kind of stories when she was young, how she used to dress. You can see how she's dressed um, in this outfit on the cover she that is a photo that she gave to eleanor roosevelt on the back of it she says this is me this is how i want you know i see myself as a healthy happy person and uh, that's kind yeah. of the way she she dressed most of the time uh, although yeah, not when she was working she had prim proper dresses <laughs> so yeah did you want to read an excerpt yeah so um she was very adventurous, uh, you know, liked the outdoors and she would go hiking in the 30s with her girlfriend. Um, so here, this is a story about one of their trips. Uh, okay. 
So life during her college years wasn't all work and no play. Holly liked to get out of the city when she could and often hitchhiked with friends to save money. In March of 1931, Polly and her friend Dorothy Hayden, whom she affectionately nicknamed Tony, hitchhiked to Newport, Rhode Island, where Tony's family lived. For safety, they wore Boy Scout uniforms and practiced speaking in a low register as they bantered back and forth like regular chums. After an uneventful ride with a traveling salesman, they were let off at the train station in Bridgeport, Connecticut where they planned to use the restrooms. At that time, members of the Traveler's Aid Society might be strolling through the station to help stranded travelers, but they also kept an eye out for vagrants or people engaging in questionable activity. That afternoon, one of them saw a young Boy Scout enter the women's bathroom. When Tony walked out, the Traveler's Aid officer confronted her. Young man, may I ask why you're coming out of the ladies' room? Me? Tony looked around in amusement. Why, it could be because I'm a girl and I have every right to use the ladies', ladies room. But you're dressed like a Boy Scout, the woman insisted. Oh, you mean this? Tony looked down at her khaki pants and waved her olive green necktie. I always wear a Boy Scout uniform when I travel. She leaned forward and whispered conspiratorially. Keeps the young men away from me, you know. The woman continued to press her. Are you traveling alone? Well, Tony began, but then the woman's gaze rested on the door of the men's room from which a second Boy Scout emerged. I see you are not alone, the woman uttered in horror. She now thought she was confronting two underage lovers on their way to elopement or worse. She immediately called a policeman over. Polly realized she would have to confess Officer, ma'am, she added respectfully, tipping her scout hat unconsciously. We weren't trying to fool anyone. We were only having some fun. We're just a couple of girls working on an article for our college newspaper. They ended up spending the night at the Bridgeport Protective Home arranged by the Traveler's Aid Officer. In the morning, they had a hearty breakfast of pancakes and bacon and proceeded on their way. Polly kept a scrapbook of her road trips, which she titled Vagabondia. Their escapade was written up in the Bridgeport newspaper. The, the story headlined, Slip Brings Halt to two, Tour of Two Girls. In her scrapbook next to the news item, Polly pasted another story about a girl who always dressed like a boy, whose mother did not discourage her. Polly must have been reminded of her aunt who had indulged her childhood desire to wear boys' clothes as well. To prove the point, she pasted a photo of herself sitting on a ledge in sporty white slacks with turned up cuffs, holding a white fedora hat. She titled the photo, The Dude, 1931. Here's a, oh, that's not, here's a picture. Okay. Uh, yeah, so. Wow. She was always dressing like a, a boy or a man. <laughs> so what was, uh, when, you, when you decided, because as you, as you were saying earlier, this was kind of a work in progress for a lot of years for you. Mm -hmm. Were you always going to make it a YA novel, a young adult novel? Or was that something that evolved into deciding to make it into a young adult novel? 
I think it was my intention, okay. but I think it's for anyone to read. So, and it's it's funny because some people or some, you know, I, I think, oh, well, the, my Kirkus review actually was uh, featured at, in their monthly newsletter. Um, so I got a nice review, but also they featured it and they didn't put it in the young adult section. They put it under indie okay. books. So it's kind of up to whoever <laughs> reads it. Um, but someone else said, um, well, my aunt was the first reader and, and she was the one actually said, you know, you've got a lot about women here. Are you sure she wasn't a lesbian and you should be talking about that more? <laughs> and um, so later I, I did. But um, this time when she read it again, she said, gosh, I just wanted to learn more about her. And uh, so, and then one of my, my blurbs said that it was like a primer to introduce you to Polly Murray. But, you know, there's a lot more to know. I couldn't, you, you can't write it all kind of in, in one book and not a sort of a dramatic book like this. It would have been too long. Right. So how much, so I guess I, I, another question for you is how much did you have to kind of trim out and cut out was there a lot of was there a lot of stories that you, you kind of wish you put in that you know maybe mm. your beta readers or the editors like ah, it's it's getting too thick so um no I, I just kind of tried to take the most dramatic stories now she actually was married um for a month or so it didn't work out very well um, you know, and I, I could have gone into that, but I thought she doesn't talk about that very much and wasn't really proud of that episode in her life. So I just dropped, you know, I didn't write about that. Okay. Um, I, you know, there's a lot about how she's doing research. Um, that's not very dramatic. So I, didn't, <laughs> you know, how she wrote all those briefs and, uh, you know, but you know, the fact that she, when she was at Howard, can go into some of the first, she was, you know, one of about four women at Howard Law School. <clears throat> and how she got in, she was working, and she did a lot of work um, as an activist, uh, you know, in the 30s, and she was um, trying to raise money for a, a man named Odell Waller, who was up for murder of his, he, he was a black man in the South who, was accused of murdering. Well, uh, he did kill um, <clears throat> the owner of the land he was sharecropping, and they, the man was trying to steal his uh, crops or the land, and they had an altercation. And uh, so she was trying to raise money for his defense. And um, Thurgood Marshall was was in one of the halls where she was talking, and. Uh, he took her aside afterwards and said, well, your arguments are so good, you should apply to law school. And um, so she, you know, or come to Howard basically where he taught. So that's how she got to go to Howard. Um, but on her, I guess it was her essay or her valedictorian when, you know, she was the head of her class, you know, she got the best grades cause they had sort of, you know, the teachers had made fun. Why are these women even in this class? You know, and uh, she said from that time, he didn't know it, but he he just, uh, I knew that I was going to be the best in the class after I heard that. <laughs> and, and she was. And so if you were had the highest grades, you were supposed to be elected to the court of peers. Well, darn if they didn't just disband the court of 
peers that year because they didn't want to have a woman uh, oh, be, be in it. And mm -hmm. so she was experiencing the gender discrimination as well uh, there. Mm -hmm. um, and but during her an address that she gave, and I think she had written an essay about it, was she uh, confronted the idea that separate can never be equal mm. um, from the, the Plessy Ferguson um, and case. And, you know, that later went to the Supreme Court and ended up with the Brown versus Board of Education. And they used her essay, you know, as one of their briefs to um, help uh, argue the case. And uh, I think her teacher said, well, maybe in 25 years uh, that that case will be decided in our favor, um, but it turned out to be in about 10 years that it came true. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so have you been able to like, you know, also kind of connect with, you know, some of Polly Murray's um, relatives or anything to... Um, not before I got the book finished, oh, um, really? but, um, as you know, I was kind of just learning, going on the web and I, I found out there was, there's a Polly Murray center that, um, has been built or started. They just won a million dollar grant from the Mellon foundation, but they oh, are wow. basically, um, uh, refurbishing and, and they have, you know, made sure that the house that Polly lived in in Durham, Durham is uh, a monument um, and then it will be preserved. Um, so that's associated with the Polly Murray Center. And I was looking at the biographies of the people on the board and one of them is Polly Murray's niece who, and she's a lovely lady about, she's about 80 years old now. And she lives right in Upper Marlboro, Marlin, not far from me. And um, I got her email and reached out to her and her niece brought her down to visit me. And um, it was the same day that I, I got, well, just as they were leaving, I, I got some mail and, and it was my first uh, advanced reader copy. But, the in, but, but um, Rosita um, is, she had written a book too. And she's written a book uh, for younger children, uh, middle school, I'd say. And, and um, it was made into a poetry. They, they decided to do it in poetry. Um, and so it's, it's just a little different than mine. But it, I think it's great that both of them are coming out at the same time. And, and we, we sort of have plans to do a double reading someday. someday so... Um. I haven't had a chance to really sit down and when they came, I just wanted to ask her so many questions. Um, well, what was she like? Or what did she think about this? Or how did you, well, did you know her? Or what did you do with her? And, and you know, I, I would love to just, uh, you know, uh, soon I'll, someday I'll sit down and just talk, you know, find out everything she knows. Right. But it was funny because I was sort of talking about some of the stories and I felt like, wow, I'm talking about your relative, but I feel like, you know, I know an awful lot about your relative. You know? So, so with that said, was there anything that you, you wanted to wish that you could have gone deeper into and, and talked more and educated more on the reader? Mm. Mm, not 
not really. I think yeah. I'm pretty happy with yeah. Yeah. the the limits of the what I set out to do. I think I accomplished with the book. So, so talking about like putting on like your author hat for a second, mm -hmm. um, what were some of the challenges or differences that you that that you noticed? between when you sit down and write your poetry as compared to writing prose how was the how was the creative process different for you well poetry has to just come out from inside of you i think um where you have an observation and it's um using the most spare language uh that you, you can and uh so I, I think my transition to writing this book was more about trying to write a, a sort of a coming of age novel. Mm. And I was, I failed at that. I never was really able to either achieve object, enough objectivity to figure out or where to go in on the story. And, and um, I just was too close to the material, uh, I think, to um, make it resonate for a larger audience. Um, so this was a way to actually, in a way, to practice writing about something that was just outside of me. The plot was always there. I, I'm not that great at making things up. Uh, so, so I guess I, I like the genre of a biography. And so it wasn't that hard. I, it's funny. I, I, was, I was working. I was getting a, well, actually, my undergraduate degree and my MFA about you know i went on so this is all while i was working i used to do two courses of classes a semester um you know or two nights a week for years uh, just <laughs> it takes a long time I, um and i was saying well how did i ever find the time to write this like <laughs> <laughs> i just like and i was looking through my files uh recently i'm retired now um can do that um, and I found a binder, just a school-type binder uh, or notebook with lined paper. And I, what I did was I would just take a chapter and I would just um, rewrite it with dialogue and action. And, you know, so there's a lot in there. When, when she would make an observation, I would put that into dialogue and find a way to make an, a scene out of it. Um, so that, that was my process. Would you say that as a, so we have a lot of authors that, 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 that listen and watch the program and, and, you know, upcoming and people that are wanting to learn how to write and stuff. What would you say to, to those that wanted that, what, what are the, what were some of the, the, the skills or get, or in a way gifts that you've you had from being a poet from writing poetry that translated easy easily for you mm -hmm. to to writing that you said oh i'm glad i knew how to do this ahead of time yeah i i think with poetry i'm very um sensitive to rhythm okay. and and how how the words really sound as they're read aloud and um I'll rewrite a sentence that's perfectly factual or, you know, but if the rhythm isn't there, um, I'm going to change the words because, you know, I want it to sound like real speech or that if I'm reading it aloud, I, I'm especially with poetry, I I'm very 
strict about the grammar. I, I'm not one of those free verse types, you know, where everything's kind of chopped up. I, you know, if there needs to be a comma and I want you to pause there, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put a comma in. And uh, and but a lot of times I put commas in just because I want to pause. It's not really for the grammar of it. Um, okay. Uh, and I, I found that even little things that they don't really tell you in writing class, I, I don't think, um, that in dialogue, when someone's pausing, that's when you put in a little bit about, uh, you know, she flipped her hair or something, you know, because um, that just putting that little part in is a pause in reality so that each part of this, the, the sentence or phrases are divided. And, you know, that's just a little trick of writing, I, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so what were some of the, so as you said, you reached out to, reached out to the rootstock. And so um, what would be your advice for people who say, Hey, you know what, Simki, I got a book. I, I, I got a book together. What do I do with it? Um, did you, you know, recommend self-publishing looking for an agent or, or going into like a, you know, a, a, a house, like a, a, a hybrid house, kind of like what rootstock is, what would be your suggestions for those that wrote something up already? I think now if, I mean, you can, doesn't hurt to try to get with the bigger publishers and just query them. Um, but I, I felt, and probably if I, you know, I had a little money to pay for it. So, you know, maybe you could even do a GoFundMe to pay for hybrid publishing, but I don't feel there's anything wrong with putting a little bit of your own money into it because just the way the book, publishing business goes now. Um, right. I, I always sort of thought, I mean, Wallace Stevens was an insurance agent. He's a poet. And so he, he didn't live off his poetry. He, you know, he didn't become a poetry teacher with an MFA and just, you know, he, he it was something he did on his own. And, um, I've always sort of, you know, and William Carlos Williams, who was a doctor, you know, I, I don't think there's, I think it's okay to have another career and then do your writing um, as, you know, you may do, make compromises if you actually try to earn a living as a writer. Um, and I, so um, I, I think it's okay to sort of figure out a hybrid way to publish your work and You've just got to, I don't know, if it's meant to go there, then it will. But, that, but the thing is, I think it's much better now that this book came out now than if I had done it before, because right. people are aware of Polly Murray. Right. Um, this book just got picked up, and I'm sure Samantha Colbert of Ruthstock, you know, she sends out e-blasts to booksellers and everything, but I noticed it was picked up by... Um, the Journal of Black, Blacks in Higher Education as a notable book to, for, to read. And, you know, it's right up there with a book about um, W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just don't know if that would have happened 10, 10 years ago. Right. So how long were you, so from the, from the first chapter, as you first started writing it, how long was this process take to, to put together this book? How many uh, when did you start writing it? Well, like I said, I don't exactly remember. And, <laughs> you know, 
for me, it was just if I had time, uh, I would just do another chapter. And then um, my favorite part, you know, and then I, you know, it was in longhand. So then I would type it up. Um, and then my favorite part is the editing, since I'm an editor, I, you know, to me, it's really hard to, you know, get that initial and it's always really bad, you know, it doesn't sound right at all. But then when you put it in typeset form, uh, it starts to look a little better. And then it's just a matter of editing. <laughs> and so that's kind of my process. So I did those one at a time. There's about 20 chapters in there. Um, so it probably took me two or two, two years maybe to do it. And it's amazing because as, as you kind of said in the, in the, in the article that you shared with me, that this is, this is something that you've wanted to write for a long time. Mm -hmm. well, well, I used to say, you know, I was raising kids. I, I could never have more than one extracurricular activity at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was actually, I was going to night school when I met my future husband. And I, I gave it up for two years because he was my extracurricular activity for a couple of years. <laughs> um, and so... Would that be something that you would recommend to, to authors and writers too, as well as to to kind of do your to do the editing, or would you recommend having like other outside editors having those beta readers and people kind of do that that line editing and then that content editing as well for you? Well, that depends how confident you are about your actual verbal abilities, I think. But yeah. I've, <laughs> I've always been a good writer and. A, an editor so i didn't read that in fact i was amazed hearing about other people's stories that you know rootstock hardly did any editing except i do have a story about that um because their first you know since i'm a white woman writing about a black queer woman um uh the first editor they recommended and because they they recommended a, a copy edit of course and i was i happy to have my work edited because um, uh, everyone needs an editor. Um, she didn't want to do it because she, as a white woman, she didn't feel qualified to write a book about a black queer woman. So uh, I looked for uh, other editors, but Rootstock, uh, Stephen Mitchell um, found um, a very good editor named Sima Stubblefield um and she did a real we couldn't figure out it was a developmental editing or copy editing or but anyway it was actually sensitivity editing okay so um she we had to take out some historical words uh starting with n and um and different words it just you know had to put the language up to date um right um, I can read a little, there's one, you know, one of my favorite passages is kind of about that. And I, I, yeah. um, I thought of a different word to use and okay. I think it's a great word because it means what the original word kind of was meant. Uh, right. it wasn't right. in the worst meaning way. Um, so this is about the, the great grandmother, the, the French woman. And okay. so she, 
she's farming and they live in a mixed community. She has a white neighbor and she's white and her husband's black. And, and um, so he comes by um, and it starts so grandfather and, and, you know, Polly's family would tell these stories. So they, the family kept a sense of these kind of the way their ancestors spoke, talked and told stories. So they were handed down through the family. And so she says, Grandfather Robert told a story about a white neighbor coming over one day and saying, ain't Sari, has, her name was Sarah, has any of those no accounts around here been stealing your chickens or your pigs lately? If they have, just let us know and we'll take care of them for you. Ms. Sarah looked up from weeding the garden and said, yes, uncle, to tell the truth, some of my chickens have been missing. The only trouble is, I don't know whether it's white no accounts or black no accounts that's been taking them. <laughs> so. Wow. <laughs> and she would say, we're all betwixt and between, getting it from both sides of the fence. Uh, and, and she says, she told her children, if they ask you what you are, just tell them what they see with their eyes they can't carry off with their noses. Folks is folks, and they all look the same in the privy. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, 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 she had their, her little, uh, you know, biracial children, or, you know, stories to tell to her children or right. how, how to cope with that. And what would you say? Because you did, you know, you did mention that you said that uh, one of her, you know, quotes was like, you know, one person uh, plus a typewriter constitutes a movement. A movement. What are some of the, you know, as, as a young adult novel, what are some of the, uh, the messages of, as that being one of them? What are some of the, what's the takeaway that you want folks to come away from after, after reading Polly, Mur Polly Murray's Revolutionary Life? Well, I guess just to be audacious uh, about who you would contact to help you or do something that needs to be done. Um, mm. uh, she, her friendship with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt started with a letter. I, I think it was, she wrote her so many, uh, but um, I think it was about, she, Polly Murray was trying to get into the University of North Carolina graduate program. And of course they, did, they didn't um, <clears throat> allow blacks in. And the idea was, well, if there's another school, you know, for blacks with the same degree, you know, then she'll go to that one. But they didn't actually have a school for sociology, whatever it was, um, you know, so there was no other um, school in the area to go to. Um, but so she wanted, I guess, um, Franklin Roosevelt knew the head of the school or anything. She wanted him to help with that. So she would she would write Eleanor Roosevelt to bend the ear of, of her husband, uh, the president, um, right. on various issues. And uh, yeah, she um, she just wasn't afraid to, I mean, she ran for office in Brooklyn one time. She just was never afraid to step out and, and try something new and um, uh, not afraid to be the first and fight for what she believed in. Mm. Yeah. No, as you said, it's a it's a powerful time to uh, for people to learn more about learn more about Polly Murray. So this and so, yeah. So Simpki, thank you for 
for getting this book published and, and allowing people to learn more about Polly Murray and what she's done. Um, if, if people are interested in what's the, what's the best place to purchase the book if people are interested in uh, getting the book? Well, I would say, I mean, you can get it anywhere, but your favorite indie bookstore is a good start or straight from Roots, Rootstop Publishing, they'll send you one if, if you order it from them. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And you can get that. And also it's available like on uh, book as well, Amazon mm -hmm. as well. Oh, sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Barnes okay. and Noble, Books a Million, all of them. Mm -hmm. So you can get that, like I said, so it's... Uh, yeah, you, you can buy the hard, you can buy the, yeah, the. There's the a hard cover that I I didn't even realize they were going to do that, but the, apparently that's for libraries. Okay. Um, so All we're right. hoping that a lot of libraries will, will find it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it looks like you can, you can go straight on Rootstock and purchase it for, yeah, 25 bucks about for the hardcover. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, kids should just get the paperback. It's, it's right. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of photos, uh, so it's, it's good. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Simki. This has been a, a a great experience, and I'm so happy to um, I'm so happy to to uh, to know that this book is out here, and it's uh -huh. as you say, it's timely. I can't yeah. as as you mentioned before. It's a it's a it's. We didn't get into all her first because that just takes too long. So, but There's if you look lot. her up, uh, you'll find a whole uh, list of all her firsts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, so she ended up her life being one of the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church. She um, switched career. You know, she had been teaching at Brandeis as a teaching law and, and, uh, Actually, it was the death of her uh, lover that prompted her to become turn to the priesthood or uh -huh. study, you know, because uh -huh. she had always been going to the Episcopal Church her whole life. Right. Wow. Yeah. Like you said, there's a lot of firsts that she did. She definitely was a trailblazer. So. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Simki, and, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what, what's coming up next for you, too. So Okay, maybe I'll get that book of poetry together. Uh, That's right. you yeah. got to come back on the show and, and talk about your poetry. Next. Okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. storytellers and artists. This is episode 150. I'm your host, Barney Smith of storycomic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed author, Simki. Simki. What? Oh, I had, to re, I had to redo that. I said that right, right? I got, Simki, yes. Simki. Okay. I got I got hung up That's on- That's a whole that. other story if you ask about my name, so you better not. <laughs> no. I, I got hung up on concentrating on saying- on uh, Kuznick. Kuznick, yeah. right, that I ended up stumbling on your first name. All right. Well, this will this will be on the editing floor. We'll we'll cut this out with okay. post, but we'll. <laughs> All right, here we go, Simki Kuznick. All right, here we go.